Father, we ask that uh, you would uh, show us wonderful things in your word this morning, that we would come and behold wonderful things from your word. Your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And Father, we pray that you would use that and use it in that way in the hearts of those who are here today, that we would, uh, Father, be eager to hear from your word. Father, move by your spirit. Father, we pray that you would speak through me by your spirit this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, throughout history, there are many examples of individuals or groups of people or societies trying to solve some problem or crisis only to accidentally or unintentionally make things worse or make a a new problem in the process. Uh, For example, around the year 1960 in China, uh, Chinese leaders introduced what was known as the Four Pests Campaign. It was designed to eliminate or at least significantly reduce the population of animals considered to be pests in the country. One of the animals on this list of pests was sparrows. Uh, Sparrows, the small birds, they they were targeted in this campaign because they would eat the grain that was grown by farmers. So the thinking was that if sparrows were killed, grain production in China would go up. The sparrows would no longer be eating the grain. However, there was one big problem with this plan by the Chinese leaders. Sparrows did not just eat grain and fruit. Sparrows also eat many insects. And so when the sparrows in China were were slaughtered and really almost wiped out, the locust population in China skyrocketed. If you know anything about locusts, they also like to eat grain and crops. And so the, the goal of killing sparrows was to increase the amount of grain produced in China, but instead the killing of sparrows led to a severe famine in China in which millions of people died. Well, eventually the, the Chinese leaders realized their mistake, they realized what had happened, and they imported a quarter of a million sparrows from Russia to replenish the supply in their country. Uh, we could find many other examples of people trying to solve problems only to make matters worse. Uh, we are, are not infallible in our wisdom. We do not have perfect wisdom. So these type of things happen all the time to all sorts of people. Uh, the point is that often our efforts as humans, our efforts to solve problems, fail. Uh, things often go wrong. Uh, sometimes things get worse. Failure often follows. Uh, We saw this last week in Egypt, right? Pharaoh tries to wipe out or significantly reduce the population of the people of Israel. And despite Pharaoh's best efforts to oppress the people of Israel and to reduce the population, well, what happens? They multiply, they grow, he fails. And we'll see in our text for today that this was true in the life of Moses as well. You can go ahead and turn with me to Exodus chapter 2. We're going to be in Exodus 2, verses 1 through 25 this morning. And in some ways, at least, we get perhaps two contrasting pictures in this chapter. We get a picture of the faith of Moses' mother, who places Moses in a basket in the river and trusts God to care for him. On the other hand, we see Moses perhaps trying to take the deliverance of God's people into his own hands by killing an Egyptian. This does not work out well for him, though, as we'll see, the Bible calls at least some of what he did an act of faith. But his deliverance that he tries to to enact on his own does not work, and he has to flee from Egypt. 
And yet, over all the events that we see in Exodus chapter 2, over all these events, sitting like an umbrella is God. He is in control of what is going on. He is at work preserving the life of Moses and preparing Moses to deliver God's people from Israel. So the, the main idea from this text this morning is that God loves his people and he providentially cares for them. God loves his people and he providentially cares for them. So I have three points for today's sermon. The first is preserving God's people. The second is identifying with God's people. And the third is caring for God's people. Preserving God's people, identifying with God's people, and caring for God's people. So first, uh, look with me at verses 1 through 10 of Exodus 2 as we look at preserving God's people. Now a man from the family of Levi married a Levite woman. The woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with asphalt and pitch. She placed the child in it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. Then his sister stood at a distance in order to see what would happen to him. Pharaoh's daughter went down to bathe at the Nile while her servant girls walked along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds, sent her slave girl, took it, opened it, and saw him, the child. And there he was, a little boy crying. She felt sorry for him and said, This is one of the Hebrew boys. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Should I go and call a Hebrew woman who is nursing to nurse the boy for you? Go, Pharaoh's daughter told her. So the girl went and called the boy's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child and nurse him for me, and I will pay you your wages. So the woman took the boy and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. So chapter 2 opens by telling us about the birth of a son to an Israelite family. So Levi, one of the tribes of Israel. And so if you were here last week, when you read this or when you hear this, alarm bells should be going off in your head. Uh, remember chapter 1 closed with Pharaoh ordering all the Egyptians to murder any male Hebrew children by throwing them into the Nile River. So when you read a son is born to an Israelite family, you should be immediately wondering what is going to happen to this boy. As we see in, in verse 2, Moses' mother... Jochebed, Jochebed is the name of Moses' mother. She hid Moses for the first three months of his life. But, uh, you know, at some point you can't just hide a child forever. When she realizes that she can no longer hide Moses, she got a basket, she covers it to, to make it waterproof, and she places Moses inside and sets the basket along the banks of the Nile River. I think in, in doing this and taking this action, Moses' mother displays a remarkable amount of faith in God. The author of Hebrews says that this is an act of faith by Moses' mother. When Moses was born, she, she hid him as, as long as she could. She sought to protect him. But when she knew she could do no more, she placed him in a basket, put him in a river, and really just entrusted Moses to God's care. Well, she did all she could for Moses, and then she trusted the Lord to care for him. And brothers and sisters, I think this is a, a good reminder to you and to, to me 
that as we seek to obey the Lord and as we seek to diligently pursue the work that the Lord has given us, well, we, like Jochebed, are to trust in his providential care. And God's providence is simply a term referring to the fact that God is actively at work in this world. God is actively at work in this world in order to fulfill his purposes. Right? We saw this last week. God was involved in what was going on in Egypt. His people prospered despite their oppression. God is actively at work in the world in order to fulfill his purposes. So we, as, as his people, can trust in his providential care, his sovereign care, that, and we can trust that he will accomplish his purposes. Now we, like Jochebed, do, do not have the ability to control all the circumstances of our lives. She had no influence over the policy that Pharaoh put in place. She had no control over the fact that she was going to have a boy and that he was going to cry and that he was going to be known. We cannot determine how things will turn out. Christians are called to do their best to be faithful to the Lord and to trust him with the results. And so Jochebed, in an act of great faith, did all she could for Moses and then entrusted him into the Lord's care. There's a a detail, too, about this this basket that Jochebed places Moses in that I do not want you to miss. The word for for basket, the word that is translated as basket here, actually can be translated as ark. The word is only used two places in the entire Bible. It's used to describe this basket here, and it is used to refer to Noah's ark. And in case you might think that is just a coincidence... The material that Jochebed used to cover the basket and make it waterproof was the exact same material that Noah covered the ark with to make it waterproof. What is going on here? Why this detail? Why is the Lord doing this? I think it's a sign and a symbol. It's a clue for you as the readers of this text. That God is delivering Moses. God is providentially delivering Moses through the waters of the Nile, these waters that were meant for judgment by Pharaoh, just as he delivered Noah through his own waters of judgment, and just as he would deliver the people of Israel through the Red Sea, which would become waters of judgment for Pharaoh and his army. God was showing his sovereign control over the situation, his providential care for his people, his providential care for for Moses. God is providentially preserving Moses, and through Moses, God will providentially preserve and redeem his people. All this, of course, points to the future deliverance that would be accomplished in Jesus Christ. We see some other amazing and surprising aspects of God's providence at work in these first few verses of Exodus chapter 2. It is none other than Pharaoh's daughter, the daughter of the very man who gave an order to all of Egypt to kill any male Hebrew baby. It is none other than the daughter of this man who finds Moses in the basket. I mean, you would expect her to immediately take Moses and to throw him in the river to obey her father. But she does not do that. In an act of great courage, she defies her father and adopts Moses as her own. Well, just within this, the first two chapters of Exodus, if you'll remember back even to the midwives of last week, this is already the third time that God has used some courageous women to providentially preserve his people. You have the midwives, Moses' mother, Pharaoh's daughter, 
And he is not done. Who is standing right there when Pharaoh's daughter finds Moses? It's none other than Moses' sister, Miriam. And in her own act of courage, she asked Pharaoh's daughter if she would like her to find a Hebrew woman to nurse the baby. And wouldn't you know it, she knows just the person for the job. And so in an amazing act of God's providence, in an amazing act of God's compassion, Moses' own mother is able to, to nurse him and keep him until he was weaned. Now, it's, it's likely that Moses stayed with his family until he was about three or four years old. It may have actually been a little bit longer than that before he, he moved to Pharaoh's household. But the Lord obviously used this time in Moses' life. This was the time that, that Moses' parents taught him about God and lessons it seemed that, that Moses would take, for, take with him for the rest of his life. And because of those years with his parents, as we will, will see, Moses never forgot who he was. He never forgot he was an Israelite. He was part of the people of God. Parents, if, if you've ever doubted the importance of teaching your children about the Lord, even when they are young, let the example of Moses change your mind. Your children can learn much about the Lord even at a very young age. At a young age, you set patterns and you teach lessons that that may stick with them and probably will stick with them for the rest of their life. God has has given you the job of faithfully instructing them and and trusting him to, to use your faithfulness to instruct you're trusting that God will use that later in their lives. You teach and you trust. Well, we have a book back in the library that you can check out about family worship. If you'd like to know more about how you might teach your children in your own home, I'd encourage you to just check out that book on family worship. Read about it and, and don't delay. Seek to instruct your children why they are young in the ways of the Lord. That brings us to the the second point of the sermon, which is identifying with God's people. So first, preserving God's people. Second, identifying with God's people. So look with me at verse 11. Years later, after Moses had grown up, he went out to his own people and observed their forced labor. He saw an Egyptian striking a Hebrew, one of his people. Looking all around and seeing no one, he struck the Egyptian dead and hit him in the sand. The next day, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you attacking your neighbor? Who made you a commander and judge over us? The man replied, are you planning to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses became afraid and thought, what I did is certainly known. When Pharaoh heard about this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. They came to draw water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Then some shepherds arrived and drove them away, but Moses came to their rescue and watered their flock. When they returned to their father, Ruel, he asked, Why have you come back so quickly today? They answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. So where is he? he asked his daughters. Why then did you leave the man behind? Invite him to eat dinner. 
Moses agreed to stay with the man, and he gave his daughter Sephora to Moses in marriage. She gave birth to a son whom he named Gershom, for he said, I have been a resident alien in a foreign land. Well, really, between verses 10 and 11 in the Bible, the Bible hits the fast-forward button. Moses is now about 40 years old. We learn that Moses is about 40 when he flees to Midian. But what I want to draw your attention to, and I I think what the text is really drawing your attention to, is not Moses' age so much, is that the fact that despite spending 35 years in the luxury and the comfort of Pharaoh's household, So he would have lived the vast majority of his life in Pharaoh's household by now. Despite having such great privilege and such great power, Moses chooses to identify himself and align himself with the people of God and not the people of Egypt. Now, you all have all immigrated to the the UAE at some point in your life. If you were born here, certainly probably your parents immigrated to the UAE at some point in their lives. So some of you may have lived here for for quite a long time by now. But I know that most of you, I think actually all of you, still identify with where you are from. I'm Indian. Well, I'm not, but some of you are. I'm Filipino. I'm Kenyan. I am Ugandan. I am American. Well, so it was for Moses. He still considered himself an Israelite. Look again at verse 11. The text says he went out to his people. But more importantly, Moses takes the side of an Israelite when he sees one of the Egyptian overseers, one of the the slave masters, striking or beating one of his own people. Now, the word that is translated striking here can mean something like a severe beating, a beating that has an actual likelihood of leading to death. So this isn't like somebody getting slapped. There's a a severe beating going on here. The, The life of this Israelite was likely threatened. And so in response to what Moses witnesses, he chose to side with the people of God and he kills the Egyptian. Well, he hid the body and he thinks no one knew what he had done. Uh, However, when he tries to break up the fight between two of his own people the next day, it becomes immediately clear that people do know what Moses has done. Moses knows this means trouble. And in fact, Pharaoh wants to kill Moses as soon as he finds out what Moses has done. And so Moses runs away. He leaves Egypt and he heads to the land of Midian. Now, at first glance, Moses comes off looking pretty bad here. He looks around before killing the Egyptian. It seems as if he knows what he's about to do is wrong. He tries to cover it up when he buries the body, and then he runs away when he learns that he has been discovered. That wouldn't look too good in a court of law were you to stack all that evidence up against Moses. But turn with me in your Bibles for a moment to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. So Acts chapter 7, this is a sermon that Stephen gives to the Jewish leaders right before he is martyred. And his speech or his sermon to the Jewish leaders is in many ways really a recounting of the history of Israel. So I'm going to go to Acts 7. We're going to mention Hebrews 11, which Angie just read, because both of these passages of Scripture provide a bit of commentary, an explanation for this event in Moses' life. 
So if you look at Acts chapter 7, starting in verse 23, this is what Stephen says. When he, he was Moses, when he was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. When he saw one of them being mistreated, he came to his rescue and avenged the oppressed man by striking down the Egyptian. He assumed his people would understand that God would give them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. Now, this passage seems to teach that what Moses did in striking the Egyptian and killing the Egyptian was actually an act of justice. He was taking the side of the people of God. He was defending an Israelite, one of his own people, from, from oppression, perhaps rescuing this man from death at the hands of the Egyptian. And interestingly, it seems that Moses seemed to already have some understanding that God was going to use him to deliver his people. Now, how Moses knew this, I, I am not sure, but if we look at Acts 7.25... Stephen says Moses assumed his people would understand that God would give them deliverance through him. But they did not understand. Well, it seems that, that Moses was seeking to act as a deliverer of God's people. And yet the Israelites, they did not understand this. These, these Hebrews that he rescued did not understand this. Well, the, the second passage that sheds light on these events is Hebrews 11, verses 24 through 26, uh, part of that passage that Angie read for us a few minutes ago. The author of Hebrews, starting in verse 24, writes this. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and chose to suffer with the people of God rather to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. For he considered reproach for the sake of Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, since he was looking ahead to the reward. So the author of Hebrews seems to call what Moses does an act of faith. He knew that by identifying with the people of God rather than the Egyptian, he was giving up the fleeting pleasures of sin. He was rejecting Egypt and all the sinful pleasures he could take advantage of as a member of Pharaoh's household, all the, the comforts and the pleasures of this world, Moses was rejecting. And he was taking the side of the one true God by taking the side of the people of God. You know, we're going to come back to Moses in a second, but brothers and sisters, have you ever thought of your own Christian walk like this? Have you ever thought about your own fight against sin like this? The Christian life is to be marked by giving up the fleeting, the, the short-lived, the passing pleasures of sin, the pleasures of this world, for a much greater reward that is to come in the future. It is to take the hard road now, trusting that the riches of Jesus Christ are much better than the riches of this earth. I just remember what, what I quoted from Hebrews 11 a, a few moments ago, that most of those people who lived in the Old Testament, well, all those people, they were looking forward to promises that they never saw fulfilled. So we do in the Christian life. We're looking forward to the return of Christ for dwelling with him forever. And so we remain faithful to him now. We take the hard road now, trusting that the riches of Jesus Christ are much better than the riches of this earth. Now, to, to go back to Moses, 
I want to acknowledge that, that killing another person is a serious thing. Whether Moses meant to kill this man, I'm not sure. Maybe he just struck him and he ended up dying. So, but, I'm, but let's just say that killing another person is a very serious thing. So I'm, I'm a little hesitant to say this. But I think the picture that Acts in, in Hebrews presents is that Moses did not necessarily act wrongly in killing the Egyptian. It's like I do not think the midwives acted wrongly in lying to Pharaoh. We, we looked at that last week. Now, now, biblical scholars are somewhat divided on this issue. Some think Moses was wrong in what he did here. Some do not think he was wrong. To be honest, I am not completely sure. But whichever, regardless, I, I think one scholar put it well when he writes this. Moses' faith was not passive. Such an action so killing the Egyptian, such an action, even if it was mistaken in some respects, was not merely a temporary fit of temper. It signaled where Moses' loyalties were, demonstrating that he associated himself with the people of God rather than with the Egyptians. In other words, Moses was right to side with the people of God, even if it was true that he may have gone about it wrongly. And at the very least, I think we have to say that the Bible emphasizes Moses' faith in siding with the people of God. Now, the Bible doesn't place a great deal of emphasis on the fact that Moses killed an Egyptian. It places a great deal of emphasis on the fact that Moses identified with the people of God. Uh, but though I'm not sure the Bible condemns Moses for his actions here, I, I do think it is important to point out that he failed in his efforts to bring deliverance to the people of God. Now, he thought he was acting as a deliverer, but his deliverance did not work. Now, maybe he failed simply because he did not patiently wait on the Lord to provide deliverance, and he was trying to take matters into his own hands, like, all right, I know God has a plan for me. I'm going to go deliver these people right now. Perhaps he needed to learn to trust in the providential care and timing of the Lord like his mother did when she placed him in the ark. Whatever the reason, though, I think you're supposed to see that Moses could not deliver the people of Israel by his own hand. The point is that Israel did not need Moses. They needed God to act on their behalf. Well, due to, to time constraints, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on Moses' time in Midian, where he lived after fleeing from Egypt. But I do want to briefly point out to you a, a couple of things from Moses' time in Midian. We see in verses 16 and 17 that Moses comes to the defense of these seven sisters who are trying to water their flocks. He's able to successfully rescue them from these shepherds that evidently have driven them off from, from the well. And Moses' rescue of these women eventually led to his marriage to Zipporah, who gives birth to a son. And that brings me to really what I most want you to see from this period of Moses' life. There's certainly more that can be said about this period. I think God used this time in Moses' life to prepare him to be the leader of God's people in the future. But what I most want you to see today is that in the naming of his son, Moses continued to identify with the people of God. He named his son Gershom, for he said, I have been a resident alien in a foreign land. Like Israel was experiencing what it was like to live as strangers in a foreign land, 
they were living as strangers in the land of Egypt. Well, Moses, who had lived in the, the, the palace of Egypt, well, he was now experiencing what it was like to be a stranger in a foreign land as he was in Midian. He had gone from Pharaoh's palace to stranger in a foreign land. And he was further identifying with the people of God, or we should say perhaps that God was further identifying him with his people by sending Moses to Midian. Uh, brothers and sisters, this desire to identify with the people of God it is really something that should characterize all Christians. When you become a Christian, you are not just forgiven of your sins, but you are saved into the people of God. When you are baptized, it's a public declaration that you have repented of your sins, that God has saved you, but it is also a sign that you are being baptized into the family of God. You are given a new family. Your, your most important identity is no longer Indian, Filipino, Ugandan, Kenyan. It is Christian. Your primary identity is no longer son of whoever your earthly parents are. It is son of God. In, in Matthew 19.29, when Jesus says, and everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or fathers, or mother, or children, or fields because of my name will receive a hundred times more and will inherit eternal life. But when Jesus says that, he is not saying that your earthly family is of no importance, or that you should place no value on your earthly family. What he is saying is that when you become a Christian, you, are being given, you have been given a new family. You are to now identify primarily with the people of God, to prioritize them, to love them, and to serve them. And friends, this is why it is so important to join a local church. It is within the context of a local church that this reality of identifying with the people of God is to be lived out. It's not the only way that as a Christian you can identify with the people of God. But the local church community is the primary context in which Christians are to identify themselves with the people of God. For those of you who are members, just consider Emmanuel's church covenant, our church covenant for a moment. What are some of the things that you committed to or covenanted together to do when you joined the church? One is to be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Another is to not neglect to gather together. In other words, to prioritize being among the people of God, your family. Another thing is to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, helping to carry each other's burdens. In other words, to identify with each other, to help carry one another's sorrows, to in some sense feel them along with them, to share in the joys of your family as you would with your earthly families. We, we could say much more about this, but I want you to see that identifying with the people of God is not just something nice that, that Moses did. Well, it is to really characterize all the people of God. Identifying with the people of God, identifying with the church is central to the Christian faith. It's primarily to be lived out in the context of the local church. This is what God intended. 
as Christians, we are to, to care for one another. And we are to care for one another in part, perhaps primarily, because it is actually one of the ways that we are to imitate our God who cares for us. And that takes us to the, the third point of the sermon, which is caring for God's people. So look with me at, at verse 23 of Exodus chapter 2. After a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor. They cried out, and their cry for help because of the difficult labor ascended to God. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the Israelites, and God knew. So as we saw in Acts chapter 7, Moses had spent about 40 years at, in Midian, uh, so Moses was in Midian for about 40 years. Uh, during this time, the Pharaoh that wanted to kill Moses dies himself. We see God is, again, providentially caring for Moses and caring for his people. God saves and preserves Moses, even though Pharaoh, perhaps the most powerful ruler in the world at that time, wanted to kill Moses two different times, as a baby and after he kills the Egyptian. But who ends up dying? Well, it's Pharaoh himself, not Moses. But following the death of Pharaoh, God's people groan under their difficult labor, and they, they cry out to God. And in verse 24 and verse 25, we see that God does four things in response. Well, first, God heard. Brothers and sisters, that is a, an amazing statement. God heard the prayers of of his people. He listened. He paid attention. That, that statement alone should be an incredible encouragement to you. God hears his people. He hears you when you pray. He hears you when you cry out and you're groaning under difficult circumstances. Brothers and sisters, your prayers matter. Although God is in control of all things, we've looked at that extensively these first two weeks in Exodus, he chooses to act through the prayers of his people. Your prayers are not just some ritual you, you go through, uh, some Christian ritual that, that you have to perform. They're not pointless. God hears and God acts in response to your prayers. God hears you when you pray. Well, the second thing that God did is, is God remembered. God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. He remembered his promise to his people that he would bring them out of the land of Egypt. Now, this does not mean that God had somehow forgotten his promise and he needed his people to like send him a WhatsApp message to remind him, like, hey, remember this promise that, that you made? That's not what's going on. No, it's, it's by their, their prayers, the people of Israel were really calling God to act according to his word and his character as the promise-keeping God. My brothers and sisters, this is why it is such a good exercise to use God's word as a guide to your prayer life. In other words, it's a good exercise to simply open your Bibles and pray God's word back to him. I mean, one example is that's what we seek to do in the prayer of adoration in our services every week. Uh, someone comes up, they, they read a psalm, and we seek to praise God by what we see in his word. 
In some sense, we're just repeating God's words back to him. But why do we do that? It's because we can confidently pray and ask that God will act according to his character, and we can confidently pray and ask that God will act according to his promises and his word. God will act according to his promises, and God will act according to his word, and God will act according to his character. God, please provide for my daily needs as you promise. God, please never leave me or forsake me. Brothers and sisters, God may not act on your timetable. God may not act in the way that you expect. But he calls you to patiently wait on him and to trust him. And you can be confident that God will act according to his word and according to his character. God remembers. He remembers the Israelites and he remembers his promise to you. The third thing that God did in response to the prayers of his people was that God saw. God saw the suffering of his people. In other words, he turned his attention to it. He paid his attention. He paid attention to it. It is interesting back in verse 11, it says that Moses looked out or he, he saw the suffering of the people of Israel. It led him to, to act and defend the Israelites against the Egyptians. But Moses' efforts ended in disaster. Well, now the text points out that God saw. God had not forgotten. He was going to act and he would deliver. Again, the people of Israel needed God, not Moses. Brothers and sisters, one of the, the great promises of God's word is that his eyes are on his people. He sees them. This is used throughout scripture as a statement of God's favor. It's a way of saying that God cares for his people. If you're a Christian, you can take comfort in the fact that God sees you. He has not forgotten you. God hears and remembers and God sees. And the final thing that that this verse says that God did is that God knew. Now in the Bible, the word knew or to know is, is often used to describe the sexual relationship between a husband and a wife. So for example, Adam knew Eve and she conceived and gave birth. Now the use of this word here in Exodus has absolutely no sexual reference. But I say that because this word has a deeper meaning than I think what comes across in English. It's used to describe a deep or intimate relationship between God and his people. He loved his people. He sympathized with their suffering and had compassion on them. He loved them. He cared. He knew. Now, friends, if you are a Christian, God knows you. You are a son or daughter of God. He loves you. He cares, he hears, he sees, he sympathizes, he has compassion, he knows you. In fact, the Bible says that he knew you even before you were born. Well, what I, I want you to see from these four things that, that God did in response to his people is that, that these last few verses are really something of a commentary or a, of, of all that has come so far in Exodus. It's like a summary statement. It's through these verses that you are to interpret all of Exodus chapter 1 and all of Exodus chapter 2. It's through these last couple of verses that we see here. The nation of Israel was suffering under slavery in Egypt. Male children had a death sentence hanging over their head. 
But God loved his people. He had not forgotten his people. He was not absent in the suffering of his people. He preserved his people and multiplied them even in the midst of their oppression. He saw and he remembered his promise. He multiplied his people even when Pharaoh sentenced male children to death. And God saw and he remembered. He preserved Moses' life so that he could one day deliver the people of God. He saw and he remembered. He knew Moses. And he heard the cries of his people. And as we will see, he would act in accordance with his word. The story of Exodus is the story of God delivering his people. Brothers and sisters, remember that the Exodus serves as the biblical pattern for the salvation that would one day come in Jesus Christ. So as we close, what I want you to see is that God's sending of his son, Jesus, to deliver his people from their sin is the greatest example of God hearing, remembering, seeing, and knowing his people. Now, Israel spent more than 400 years in Egypt before God rescued them. And for much of that time, it it may have seemed as if God had forgotten them. They're suffering in, in slavery. They're oppressed. They're in darkness. Well, in a similar way, the 400 years before the arrival of Jesus Christ is sometimes called the silent period. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. It is the last record of God speaking to his people until the arrival of Jesus, or really we should say until the arrival of John the Baptist on the scene, who was the precursor to Jesus, 400 years later. It was a time of darkness and oppression for the people of Israel. When Jesus arrived, his people were ruled by the Roman Empire. They were, they were oppressed. They were under the thumb of the Romans. And so Israel was eagerly anticipating the even greater deliverance that God had promised throughout the Old Testament. They were looking forward to the long-promised Messiah who would deliver them. And God heard and saw and remembered his promise to his people. He had not forgotten. And God provided a much greater and a much different salvation than most expected. As we've seen so many times as we were going through Luke's Gospel... Uh, people in Israel were looking for an earthly savior. They wanted somebody to free them from their Roman oppression. But God saw that his people had a much greater need. He knew what they really needed rescuing from was not their Roman rulers, but it was from their bondage and slavery to sin. So God sent a new and greater Moses, Jesus Christ, to redeem and rescue his people. And God preserved the life of Moses so that Moses would be able to lead God's people out of Egypt. This would not be the path that Jesus walked. Jesus saved his people by suffering in their place, by dying for them on the cross. And he did this because he loved his people, he knew them, and he did it that they might be set free from their bondage to sin. Friends, if you are here and not a Christian, know that when you cry out in humble faith to God, when you place your faith in Jesus, when you ask God to forgive your sins, God hears you. He remembers his promise to save all those who believe in Jesus. And he remembers his promise to forgive their sins. And when you do this, something wonderful happens. You become known by God. You become a child of the King. You become a son or daughter of God. Friends, that's what salvation is all about. It is to be known by the God of the universe. The Exodus is the picture of the greater salvation that came in Jesus Christ. If you have more questions about salvation that comes in Jesus Christ, I invite you to come talk to me after the service. 
for those of you who are Christians, Jesus has promised that he will come again. thought about that a few moments ago. That promise is, is 2,000 plus years old by this point. So maybe you feel as if God has forgotten that promise and that, that God has forgotten you. But just recall your own salvation and recall the exodus. Remember that, that God providentially cares for his people. Remember that God is a promise-keeping God and that he will always act according to his word. He will return. He has not forgotten. It is worth it to give up the fleeting pleasures of sin as Moses did for the greater reward to come in Jesus Christ. In the meantime, be patient and trust in your God who loves you and your God who providentially cares for you. Let's pray.